This is episode 142 of the Dear Discreet Guide podcast. This episode is titled The Scarlet Plague by Jack London. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show. And thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. Today we're going to be talking about the Scarlet Plague, which is a post-apocalyptic fiction novel written by Jack London, and it was originally published in a uh, magazine in 1912, although it was written in 1910. It was serialized eventually in the May through June 1912 issue and eventually published as a book in 1915. Now, the cover of the book is kind of what you'd expect, you know, pretty somber, mostly black, kind of this dour uh, outline of buildings. But the story was published again in the 1949 issue of Famous Fantastical Mysteries. And here it got a slightly different presentation. You'll have to check out the cover. So it shows uh, this uh, very flamboyant a uh, sort of comic book looking cover and there's a, a blonde woman dressed in a golden bikini who's draped across uh, the planet earth which is totally covered in red and kind of dripping with blood Jack London said that he was inspired by in part by Edgar Allan Poe's short story The Mask of the Red Death and in fact uh, this story The Scarlet Plague as you'll see, actually serves as inspiration for a number of other uh, works of art that we've talked about on the Sunday series, including the one we talked about last week, Earth Abides, very much so, in fact. I'm going to throw a bunch of dates at you here, so see if you can keep up. The story is set in year 2073, and that Inside the story is 60 years after there had been an uncontrollable epidemic, the so-called Red Death or Scarlet Plague, that took place in 2013. Okay, so remember that London is writing this in about uh, 1913, and so he is looking forward to a year that's 100 years in the future when the plague arrives, and then looking forward another 60 years beyond that to the aftermath of the plague. His story mostly centers around a fellow by the name of James Howard Smith, and he is one of the survivors of the Scarlet Plague. And it's an interesting name choice, since we know that James Smith is a very important name in American history. He was a frontiersman, farmer, and soldier, uh, was captured by the Indians, and then uh, eventually fought in the Revolutionary War. I'm sure it's no, not a coincidence that uh, the protagonist of Scarlet Plague is named James Smith, as he too was a survivor in many ways. So back to our James Smith, Uh, he is a survivor 
in the San Francisco area, and he lives with his grandsons, uh, Edwin, Hoo-Hoo, and Harelip. And now, in this day and age, his grandsons are young, robust hunter-gatherers in this area that is now uh, heavily depopulated. And their uh, education is obviously very limited, but so is their intellect as well as their language abilities. Uh, But they occasionally ask James Smith, Granzer, they call him, to tell them the story of when the disease arrived. And he does uh, tell the story of his life uh, before the plague when he was an English professor at UC Berkeley. And so he recounts that in the year 2013, the year after, quote, Morgan V was appointed president of the United States by the board of magnates, Interesting. I guess we've gotten rid of the Electoral College by then. The disease came about and spread, and he describes how the sufferers uh, turn red, in fact, and then die very quickly after the onset of symptoms. The book is now in the public domain, so it's available on the internet, both in written form and in audio form. So this time for once, I'll try not to uh, have too many spoilers for you in case you do want to read it. It's a quick read and might be entertaining for you. I'll read you a little bit here so you get a sense of the kind of writing that London was using for this. Uh, So here we have Granzer, the old man, the survivor. And at this point, he must be about 87. I think he said he was 27 uh, when the plague arrived, and it's been 60 years. Uh, so he's he's kind of in and out. Uh, he sort of mumbles, and his mind wanders, and uh, he talks about things that the kids don't understand. And so here's he's mumbling away about things, and he says, and think of it, and all because of the scarlet death. The adjective had caught Harelip's ear. He's always saying that, he said to Edwin. What is scarlet? The scarlet of the maples can shake me like the cry of bugles going by, the old man quoted. It's red, Edwin answered the question, and you don't know it because you come from the chauffeur tribe. They never did know nothing, none of them. Scarlet is red, I know that. Red is red, ain't it? Harelip grumbled. Then what's the good of getting cocky and calling it scarlet? Granzer, what for do you always say so much what nobody knows, he said. Scarlet ain't nothing, but red is red. Why don't you say red then? Red is not the right word, was the reply. The plague was scarlet. The whole face and body turned scarlet in an hour's time. Don't I know? Didn't I see enough of it? And I am telling you it was scarlet because... Well, it was scarlet. There's no other word for it. Red is good enough for me, Harelip muttered obstinately. My dad calls red red, and he ought to know. He says everybody died of the red death. Your dad is a common fellow, descended from a common fellow, Granzer retorted heatedly. Don't I know the beginnings of the chauffeurs? Your grandsire was a chauffeur, a servant, and without education. He worked for other persons. But your grandmother was of good stock. Only the children did not take after her. Don't I remember when I first met them catching fish? What is education? Edwin asked, calling red scarlet. Harelip sneered, then returned to the attack on Granzer. My dad told me, and he got it from his dad before he croaked, that your wife was a Santa Rosen and that she was sure no count. He said she was a hash slinger before the Red Death, 
though I don't know what a hash slinger is. You can tell me, Edwin. But Edwin shook his head in token of ignorance. It's true she was a waitress, Granzer acknowledged, but she was a good woman, and your mother was her daughter. Women were very scarce in the days after the plague. She was the only wife I could find, even if she was a hash-slinger, as your father calls it. But it is not nice to talk about your progenitors that way. Dad says that the wife of the first chauffeur was a lady. What's a lady? Hoo-hoo demanded. And so it goes on like that. Granzer goes on trying to lay the scene for them of what it was like in uh, 2013, and he says that the census of 2010 uh, showed that there were 8 billion people in the whole world, uh, which, since it was close to 7, is pretty dang close for London. you got to give him credit for that. Anyway, he goes on and tries to explain how he could uh, make a living as an English professor, which they think is pretty funny, that he just uh, could be paid for talking. And he goes on to try and explain a lot about germs and bacteriologists. I'll try and read you a bit here, but they get very impatient, and you might as well. I was telling you of the Scarlet Death. Where was I in my story? You were telling about germs, the things you can't see but which make men sick, Edwin prompted. Yes, that's where I was. A man did not notice at first when only a few of these germs got into his body, but each germ broke in half and became two germs, and they kept doing this very rapidly, so that in a very short time there were many millions of them in the body. Then the man was sick. He had a disease, and the disease was named after the kind of germ that was in him. It might be measles, it might be influenza, it might be yellow fever. It might be any of thousands and thousands of kinds of diseases. Now this is the strange thing about these germs. There were always new ones coming to live in men's bodies, long and long and long ago, when there were only a few men in the world, there were few diseases. But as men increased and lived closely together in great cities and civilizations, new diseases arose, new kinds of germs entered their bodies. Thus were countless millions and billions of human beings killed. And the more thickly men packed together, the more terrible were the new diseases that came to be. Long before my time in the Middle Ages, there was the Black Plague that swept across Europe. It swept across Europe many times, and there was tuberculosis that entered into men whenever they were thickly packed. A hundred years before my time, there was the bubonic plague, and in Africa was the sleeping sickness. The bacteriologists fought all these sicknesses and destroyed them, just as you boys fight the wolves away from your goats or squash the mosquitoes that light on you. The bacteriologists... But Granzer, what's a what you call it? Edwin interrupted. You, Edwin, are a goat herd. Your task is to watch the goats. You know a great deal about goats. A bacteriologist watches germs. That's his task, and he knows a great deal about them. So as I was saying, the bacteriologists fought with the germs and destroyed them, sometimes. There was leprosy, a horrible disease. A hundred years before I was born, the bacteriologists discovered the germ of leprosy. They knew all about it. They made pictures of it. I have seen these pictures, but they never found a way to kill it. But in 1984, there was the Pantoblast Plague, a disease that broke out in a country called Brazil and that killed millions of people. But the bacteriologists found it out and found the way to kill it so that the Pantoblast Plague went no farther. 
they made what they called a serum, which they put into a man's body and which killed the pantoblast germs without killing the man. And in 1910, there was pellagra and also the hookworm. These were easily killed by the bacteriologists, but in 1947, there arose a new disease that had never been seen before. It got into the bodies of babies of only 10 months old or less, and it made them unable to move their hands or feet or to eat or anything, and the bacteriologists were 11 years in discovering how to kill that particular germ and save the babies. He goes on and on like that, inventing uh, these diseases that happened in his past and uh, in uh, the, the future from 1910. And then one of the grandsons uh, gets aggravated and uh, stands up and says, that's enough. Granzer, Granzer, he announced, you make me sick with your gabble. Why don't you tell us about the Red Death? If you ain't going to, say so, and we'll start back for camp. And so uh, Granzer tries to leap ahead here and uh, talk about what uh, started happening in uh, 2013, the summer that 2013, when he was 27 years old. And he starts to talk about wireless dispatches, but the grandson (laughs) starts spitting on the ground, and so he hastens ahead. We talked through the air in those days, thousands and thousands of miles, and the word came of a strange disease that had broken out in New York. There were only 17 million of people living then in that noblest city of America. So he got that slightly wrong. Nobody thought anything about the news. It was only a small thing. There had been only a few deaths. It seemed, though, that they had died very quickly and that one of the first signs of the disease was the turning red of the face and all the body. Within 24 hours came the report of the first case in Chicago, and on the same day, it was made public that London, the greatest city in the world next to Chicago, had been secretly fighting the plague for two weeks and censoring the news dispatches, that is, not permitting the word to go out forth to the rest of the world, that London had the plague. It looked serious, but we in California, like everywhere else, were not alarmed, We were sure the bacteriologists would find a way to overcome this new germ, just as they had overcome other germs in the past. But the trouble was the astonishing quickness with which this germ destroyed human beings and the fact that it inevitably killed any human body it entered. No one ever recovered. There was the old Asiatic cholera when you might eat dinner with a well man in the evening, and the next morning, if you got up early enough, you would see him being hauled by your window in the death cart. But this new plague was quicker than that, much quicker. So then he goes on to describe uh, what happens at school where a woman in his classroom dies and how he goes back home and everyone flees. Uh, Everyone is panicked because there's no... A f- way to fight back against this disease, and eventually the whole of civilization kind of uh, collapses in on itself. And I won't tell more of the story in case you do want to read it. It's worth a read, and it's pretty short. And here we have, again, as we did in uh, Earth Abides, the contrast between the generation that remembers the old civilization and then the newcomers who have a completely different way of living and who kind of poo-poo the old people and what they know because it's just not relevant anymore. There were a couple of reviews actually on Amazon that I thought were particularly well-written, and so I'll give you a, a sense of them. 
the first one is called Mad Max's Great Grandfather. He says this uh, 1912 story stands amongst the earliest of, quote, after the collapse dystopias. In it, Jack London starts with San Francisco of his day, not that different except for the horses than it is today. A mysterious plague breaks out, bringing great death within hours of its first symptoms and, of course, incredibly contagious. Polite society quickly degenerates into isolated bands. Some come together for mutual support, others as predatory wolf packs. Even a college campus turns into a war zone with as many dead from gunfire as from disease. As you may imagine, London's writing style works well in conveying the brute savagery. Another one, Jack London's sci-fi venture. This short novelette of Jack London's is a radical departure from his usual he-man expostulations upon brutal nature, brutal men, brutal institutions, and brutal oceans. He has managed science fiction with as much adroitness just as well as he did with his usual genres. It's fascinating to see how he made projections upon the progress of technology 100 years ahead of his time, wireless radios being used for routine communications between regular folks, monorails to transport the masses overhead, and private luxury zeppelins for the wealthy to travel. After this pandemic had culled humanity by at least 95%, there was an irrevocable descent by humanity into savage barbarity once they lost their comforts, technology, and institutions, and that is the common thread of brutality that this story has with the rest of London's works. Pretty nice review. Uh, Somebody else said, interesting quick read. Uh, His imagination is pretty spot on. Uh, The only part I found disconcerting is the rate at which man devolves after the Great Plague, with only 60 years passing before the narrator's grandsons are little more than savages. I would think it would take more than two generations for speech to devolve and lose syntax and composition, rendering it nearly unrecognizable. Unlike some readers, however, I find it wholly believable that the grandsons act the way they do toward their grandfather. The things he describes are so far beyond their experience that they simply cannot comprehend, and he treats them with about as much disdain as they treat him, calling them dirty savages at every chance he gets. Another one here, London's future is bleak. Uh, This work is vivid and profoundly pessimistic. If there's a fun part, it's London's portrait of Earth about 2013, a population of 8 billion, gross inequities of wealth and power, monorails, dirigibles, wireless communications, not bad for guessing a century ahead. London published The Scarlet Plague in uh, 1912, as we said, And that period from 1912 to 1916 is considered kind of a period of decline by London's biographers. Uh, London died at the very young age of 40 in 1916, presumably of an overdose of morphine, but also of underlying poor health, partly related to a lifetime of very heavy drinking. He had a very tough uh, young upbringing, and his life deserves a longer uh, exploration than we're going to get into today. Uh, But he is a very interesting character. He had a very tough early life, uh, left school early, and did a lot of uh, very hard work, traveled a lot, and a lot of those adventures 
uh, fed into his most uh, known works, which are the novels The Call of the Wild and White Fang. His was interested in dogs from a young age also, and uh, many of his works uh, revolve around dogs and the relationship between dogs and man, and in particular nature and man. One of his short stories is To Build a Fire, which I also highly recommend, and perhaps another day we can get into that because it's uh, worth exploring that one more. London was incredibly successful financially with his writing, which is what he had hoped for that would allow him to escape a world of hard labor, part of which uh, is actually what influenced his interest in organized labor and socialism. Uh, But he was eventually very successful uh, financially, uh, but did struggle with his own demons. His mother had attempted suicide, something that he looked into himself and it wasn't uh, clear how it affected him, the loss of his relationship with his father, but he definitely had some demons to fight. In particular, alcohol was uh, something that he struggled with, and he eventually wrote a book, allegedly an autobiography, although much of it is called into question, called uh, John Barleycorn. In that book, he explores in great detail his long history and troubles with alcohol. And when the book was published, it caused a major controversy because alcoholism at the time was seen as a weakness of character. And since London was held in such high esteem, it really uh, detracted from his reputation. In fact, London was an early supporter of the women's suffrage movement because he thought that uh, if women came into power, that they would uh, outlaw alcohol, something he thought would be helpful to him and also to people around him. London was an atheist, and I'm going to close with this. He's quoted as saying, I believe that when I am dead, I am dead. I believe that with my death, I am just as much obliterated as the last mosquito you and I squashed. What's interesting to me about this, actually, is that London obviously lives on in his works, and so he is not squashed. And uh, as we know, with sicknesses that are carried by mosquitoes, sometimes the mosquito kind of carries on, too. Thanks for listening, everybody. Well, the pandemic isn't really over, but it seems as though we've moved into a different phase where our lives have a bit more normalcy. As a result, we're adjusting the format of the show back to fewer, more lengthy episodes airing on Tuesday and Friday and sometimes on Sunday, since those Sunday literary episodes have been very popular. Speaking of which, our downloads have exploded during the pandemic, so thank you for your patronage. If you like what we do, you can support the show through our Patreon page. Another way to support us, which doesn't cost anything, is to follow us or like us on Podomatic.com, and that will help us increase our visibility. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a comment about who you are, what you like, or if you have a comment about the show. And finally, I also run a professional training company for people who want to advance in their careers with courses on communication skills, executive presence, and accent reduction. You can find out more at discreteguide.com, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T-G-U-I-D-E. Please take care and let's talk again soon.